Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Two days away from a Federal Reserve decision and a big, big question needs to be asked. Are global policymakers facing an inflection point? Joining us here in New York, Danny Blanchflat, Dartmouth professor, former Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member and author of Not Working, Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone? Good morning to you, Danny. Hi, John. Looking Great to forward, be here. Looking forward to talking about your book in just a moment. Sure. We have to reflect on the fact that at the Bank of England, you worked through one of those inflection points, 2006 through 2009, one of the most important inflection points of recent economic history. Walk us through that moment and what we can learn from that moment today. Well, I think the signs were there for quite a long time that uh, a, a huge downturn was coming and people missed the sign. Uh, um, but the reality is looking back, acting sooner rather than later would have been the sensible thing to do. Probably if you think today, uh, a central bank acting, let's say by the Fed, deciding right now we'll get ahead of the game would be sensible. Hard to see what the risks are if you do that. So if it was me at this June meeting looking at what the market thinks is coming, I would vote for a 50 basis point cut right now on the basis that if the economy improves, fine, that, then we can always reverse it. But I think the great concern we have is that we had a... We, all the economics is terrible at the turning point. We missed the turning point. And it certainly feels to me, and I've been saying it with you on this show for a really long time, yeah. those Fed rate rises were in error. Uh, and I think we're seeing a slowing coming. Well, let's talk about that turning point. We've had growth scares before in the last 10 years, 2011, 2012. 2015, 2016 was another one. It feels like we're working our way through another one right now, Danny. Why is this any more sinister than the growth scares we've had before? Um, well, I think in many, in many of these countries, we've still seen people struggling. So after a 10-year recovery... Lots of people are still hurting in the UK, especially 6% um, real wage drop compared to 2008. And I think if we look back, financial crises take a really long time to recover from. Uh, and I think what we're probably seeing now is a slowing driven from China, from Germany, from Austria and Italy. Significant slowing coming. I think the only question is how, sl how much slowing there is. I think slowing's in the air, but, but the question is what's the bottom? Well, Danny, put yourself on the FOMC right now. They're looking at the economic data. The trailing data is okay. The forward-looking indicators are a little bit more shaky. How do you communicate the idea that we need a 50 basis point cut when the trailing data is still okay? Well, the market certainly is pricing that in, pricing in three cuts by Christmas, uh, and I think that they've been right. I mean, if you look back at that turning point in 2008, um, the actual data didn't tell you. So in the UK, as a good example, UK went into recession in April 2008, and to really get a sense of that, you would not have known by, until July 09 that that's where you were. So at turning points, it's hard to see them. You want to get ahead of that game, and we clearly did not. So it looks to me that this slowing is coming. And what you're going to be in a situation you do not want to be in as you were before. I mean, we were in a situation at the Bank of England where we cut by 50, 150, 150 in successive months. And it looks like blind panic. So essentially, you need to get ahead of the game. And my view is that the Fed shouldn't have raised rates at all. But you know, now we're in that position. But slowing appears to be coming. Look at China. Look at the data that you're seeing. And I was talking to Tom this morning. I look at various indices like this cash transport index. 
good indication that transportation is in decline. There's 3.5% drop in April. That's the kind of indicator we had in 08. So the forward-looking indicators are not good. The, the lesson to learn is get ahead of the game. And what's right. the consequence if you, if you cut rates and things are better? Okay, down the road, we'll raise them again. Hard for me to see any downside risk of doing that. The, the depression was a series of three or four events, depending yes. on which historian, let's say Ben Bernanke, that you read. And I don't think this 10 or 12 years has been any different. We had a slowness. We cleared the market. We had a Trumpian stimulus, if we will, with a massive yep. deficit yep. blowout we've got now. And then there's the now what? What's your guidance to Democratic candidates and whoever's going to run for the Democratic Party in 2020 to affect a better labor economy? What's the to do for them? All that to do is to, is to care about jobs and start to deliver, in some sense, start to deliver on the promises that Trump made to the folks who voted for him and have really seen no improvement. And so this is the big deal coming down. Okay, the but road. we've delivered unit. Can we all agree well, we, we've delivered right. unit growth in jobs? Well, we've two hundred thousand a month, et cetera, et cetera. Right, but the employment rate is still two and a half percentage points below where it was in '08, and there's lots of people that are hurting. We're seeing. I mean, we've seen. Then this what is the social incentive to get those people employed to get better quality full-time jobs? The social incentive is that we've. I mean. The, the big deal, and I've got a new paper showing, Americans are in pain. I mean, that's the big thing. John tells me this daily. Well, they are. I mean, I, I, if you, the, the astonishing piece of data I saw was that one in four visits to a doctor in America, people report being in chronic pain. Um, just, and, and the late Alan Kruger did some fantastic work on this, Danny. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we, we, we've been doing work on it as well. Yeah. Um, and, and we find if you just take it, we have surveys across countries, Ameri holding everything constant you can think of, Americans are twice as likely to say that they're in pain. That shouldn't, that shouldn't be happening at the, at the end of a recovery. You just think, well, presumably if we start to slow, this is all going to get worse. So the opioid deaths, the suicide, the... Um, uh, uh, Drinking too much and liver having an effect on um, liver poisoning and so on. So this, the, these social concepts are really big. And I think, Tom, the big story in the book I talk a lot about, relative things matter. And what we, what we see, if, one, if the elites are doing well and the others are not, that, that so actually Danny, matters. Let's talk about the book. Not working, where have all the good jobs gone? I've had the benefit and the privilege of enjoying watching this come together with you over right, the last of course, couple of years. Absolutely. And I remember the title of the book was actually going to be It's the Labour Market Stupid. Yes. I remember when you were first putting this together. Yes. So just in a couple of minutes, just briefly, help us understand what you explore in the book and what we should learn from it. So it's about two things, especially about policymakers and policymakers' errors, and then the consequences and particularly to think about 2008 was a fundamental change in economics, certainly in the economics of the labor market. And my old book, The Wage Curve, which worked really well up to 2008, didn't work after that. So we have to try and think what the heck's going on. And the big story we have to think about is why are wages, why are wages so weak and why are people hurting? And the answer is because yeah. um, we, you know, everything changed in 2008. We haven't delivered good jobs. To, to enough people. Right. The people at the top, me, I've done fine. But I worry about yeah. people in Ohio and in Michigan and, uh, and the places that, w that went for trouble. And the same in the UK. The phenomenon is the same. What are you going to do about people whose full-time jobs have gone? Danny, great to catch up with you. Danny Blanchflair, Dharma professor, former Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member and author of Not Working, Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone? Congratulations on another fantastic <laughs> book, Danny. Thank you. David Blanchard, thank you so much. 
Capri and Mezzos listening to us going, would these guys get to something adult <laughs> now? She joins us from TD Securities, <laughs> Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy. Is the rates market pricing in too much? Priya, you think it is. Walk us through it. Hi, John. Uh, hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. So, I think the rates market is pricing in a much worse economic outlook than we know right now, frankly. And I don't think Powell this week is going to pre-commit to a rate cut. I think he's going to say what they've been saying for the last few weeks and months, that they will do what it takes to sustain the expansion. The rates market is saying that that expansion is essentially at, under threat, either from the tariffs or from this global growth slowdown. I think we just don't know enough. So, uh, you know, I think the market might be a little disappointed, but I don't think too much because, you know, if, if all the Fed says is we'll do what it takes, I think then it's all going to come down to what happens right after the G20. Do we get the additional tariffs, which our view is that you won't, and, and how is the economy holding up? And if the economy is still holding holding up okay, I think we should keep some cuts being priced in. I think pricing in three eases for this year is a, a little pessimistic or, or pretty pessimistic, but I think it's it's only incoming data, incoming trade negotiations. I think that's ultimately what will price the market out. So Priya, that's your assessment of things right now. Walk us through how you think this is going to be formalized in the statement on Wednesday and in the summary of economic projections from the Fed as well. Sure. Yes. So I think, you know, they, they have to walk this pretty fine line of saying we'll do what it takes, but they've got a bunch of places where it, it needs to show up. So on the statement, I think we'll get some mark-to-market changes. I think they have to downgrade a little bit on the uh, payroll front, but then household spending is, is, is looking pretty strong. I think what the first thing I'll be looking for in the statement is did they drop the word patience? What does that mean? What is, this came up this weekend, actually. What does patience mean? Yeah, and you know, that meaning has actually changed over the course of the last six months. So when it was first put in place, it was a very dovish signal because the Fed went from pre- predicting or forecasting hikes right. to saying actually path of least resistance is on hold. I think they need to take that out because now saying path of least resistance is staying on hold is hawkish. Now they need to say, they, so our view is they take it out and they say we monitor and we're going to evaluate whether further adjustments are needed. So keep the optionality but don't go as far as to say, and I think what will be very dovish is if they put in balance of risks tilted to the downside. I don't see that yet, and I think there's a lot of uncertainty, but if they do put that in there, that means the last few data misses is making the Fed nervous that momentum is faltering. Let's go to this wonderful phrase, Priya, you just said, which is optionality, or they have a choice set to make. Are right. all of the banks losing their optionality because disinflation indicators are limiting what they can do in the future? Now, that's fair. I think the banks that some of them that have, you know, taken the step around calling for all these eases, I think it's it's worth thinking about are they changing the out their outlook or is it a reaction function question? I don't think the Fed reaction function has changed all that much. I think it's all about outlook. So my view is that the the outlook is still uncertain. It's possible that people have a more negative outlook. This reaction function, John, is really important. When you see five-year, five-years in Europe go three-and-a-half standard deviations, as they have. Well, the reaction function is always important. The confusion around the Fed is that hardly anyone has understood what the reaction function of the Fed actually is. Last year, inflation was below target. They hiked through right. it, Tom. 
Priya, that's changed, well hasn't it? Well said. Yeah, well, but you know, just a month ago, we had Chair Powell saying that they think that the weakness in inflation is transitory. So they, they are going to give it some time. And we've already seen some signs of the PCE momentum has turned in, in, in inflation. So some of that, you know, portfolio management fees, for example, that has started to move higher. Yeah. So if they're buying time, again, optionality to Tom's point, by year end, if inflation has not moved higher, I think then they can say, look, we thought it was transitory. It's not. Maybe we need to ease. Right now, they're giving themselves time to figure out if this weakness is transitory or not. But clearly, the market, I think, is looking at, and uh, you brought up um, European and break-evens. I think they've fallen the most because the ECB is sort of out of ammunition. You know, okay, Merriam-Webster, John, can't we just say temporary instead of tra- What the hell is transitory? Same thing, I guess. But in economics, you know, you use a little bit of jargon here it's and like there. It's like V-shaped. You know, well, I don't see any difference from the V-shaped malarkey. So, so the line in the ago. statement is in the second paragraph. We'll all be watching it. It currently says the committee will be patient as it determines what future adjustments to the target range for the Fed funds rate may be appropriate. Patient implying will wait. If patience is there this Wednesday, I think there's going to be some real disappointment because the market is not looking for the Fed to wait around. So that's the statement, Priya. Let's talk about this summary of economic projections. At the moment, as you imply, in rates right now, in the Fed funds futures market, essentially what we have is several rate cuts being priced. The Federal Reserve in the median dot in the SEP is one single hike. How do we reconcile those two things this Wednesday if we do at all to what degree? Right. So I think the uh, dot plot is going to look hawkish because, you know, you can have two or three Fed officials looking for cuts this year. For the median to move to a cut, we need eight people to move to cuts this Interesting. year. That's a pretty high bar. But I think what we hear from Powell is look at the median, look at the entire dot plot and take it with a bit of a you know grain of salt or a fistful of salt because the uncertainty bands are much higher. And what the dot plot is giving you is your modal outlook or the baseline outlook but we just don't know. There's a lot of uncertainty. Does so I think what I'll be looking at is more than the median. I mean, the median is important. And I think we will have, we will take the median down from 2020. So next year, I think there won't be any hikes penciled in. But look at the distribution. Right. <clears throat> How many people are penciling in cuts this year, cuts next year? Yeah, what happens yeah, to the long well run? Said. Priya, are the dot plots on the same? Are they the same as the various PhD and researchers at the Fed? Or can the dots be separate from the Fed belief? Well, I think the, the Fed should act based on modal outlook plus the risks. I think the dots are only giving you the modal outlook. So that's where the PhDs yeah. come in with their modal outlook. But I think we, sh- the Fed will have a view on risks. And if risks are clearly uh, you know, skewed to the downside, they can be more dovish than the dot yeah. plot implies. And we've seen the dot plot being wrong <clears throat> many times. But it's still, as much as the Fed tries to de-emphasize it, it's, you're putting numbers. We're going to look at the numbers. We're going to look at the market. So the market would, yeah. will absolutely focus on it. Wonderful. Priya Misra, thank you so much. TD Security. Thanks, Priya. Really, really smart. Uh, just to set us Always up Always smart. It is better than good to have Stephen Engel join us. He has been truly one of the lead reporters in Western media across all of the Pacific Rim and has spent 
the last number of hours in days on the streets of Hong Kong and joins us right now. Stephen Engel, what is lost in translation? Are the images of millions of people protesting? What is it like on the streets? Well, I am here now in front of uh, the legislative building, and uh, the protesters are remaining. Okay, it's not two million, as estimated by organizers yesterday on a Sunday when families, uh, grandmothers and mothers and daughters walked hand in hand through the streets. Of course, in those spectacles, those photos that we've seen around the world. But there's the diehard protesters here uh, singing songs just a few feet away from me right now as the sun is set and they are not going away. They are also camped around the office of the embattled chief executive, Carrie Lamb. They want her to resign. They want the controversial extradition bill withdrawn, not just suspended. They want their comrades who are in jail here on charges of rioting on Wednesday. They want them released. And at very least, what they want is an apology from Carrie Lamb in person, not just a written statement they got last night. And they want her to come out and meet and talk and engage in dialogue with these protesters who are uh, steadfast in their belief that they are right side of history. And uh, they are a, quite a jubilant bunch as well. Stephen, a remarkable calm down from Carrie Lam, the chief executive. Just walk us through the language she used and just how much pressure she is under at the moment and whether you could see her actually stepping down. Yeah, that's the, the million-dollar question right now. I mean, most people I've spoken to say it's, if she doesn't step down, it's very <clears throat> unlikely that she will last uh, for a second term, which would be in 2022. So it's it potential. you know, we could have the potential of her being a bit right. of a lame duck for the next couple of years here in Hong Kong. But... Uh, Stepping down, we're hearing that could come tomorrow. It might not. We simply don't know. We haven't really heard from Carrie no. Lamb today. Stephen Engel, thank Thanks, you so Stephen. much for your reporting. Stephen Engel with Bloomberg News in Hong Kong. We've had a huge response to Meredith Sumter, not only with the Eurasia Group, but also with her ability to review the Chinese media. Meredith, what are the Chinese saying in Chinese that we're not seeing in the Western media? Thanks, Tom. Well, certainly what's been notable over the last 24 hours is the slight shift, whether intended or not, by perhaps the most important Communist Party mouthpiece, uh, state media uh, on uh, the mainland, the People's Daily, whereas for the past several days, uh, Chinese state media have been expressing support for both the Hong Kong government and the embattled chief executive, Carrie Lam. Uh, amidst the calls for her to resign, the People's Daily came out backing the Hong Kong government, but they failed to mention Carrie Lam. Meredith, how difficult would it be for Carrie Lam to hold on? You know, she is she's a she's a tough cookie. I would expect that we're going to see her fight to hold on to her job. Uh, and in fact, my expectation is that you will see her government formally withdraw uh, the ex- the extradition bill, as well as perhaps the uh, forced stepping down of some um, Hong Kong officials before she herself would allow herself to come under pressure to step down. But what's really interesting here. Uh, is looking at how the mainland is trying to uh, keep up with the fast-moving events in Hong Kong and and clearly feeling as if Beijing has misread 
uh, the, the collective will of the Hong Kong people. So underneath a, a traditional collective leadership model, we would expect that Beijing would move quickly to reduce tensions yeah. and be confident that it could achieve its goals, perhaps over the medium term with a slower-paced approach through commercial and infrastructure ties. But this is the China of Xi Jinping. And if you've looked at when he's been challenged in the past, whether it's been the anti-corruption campaign he's waged or uh, pressure from Xinjiang, he has doubled down when he's been pushed up against the wall. Uh, so the key here is who is going to win over in, in Beijing as Carrie Lam tries to hold on to her job and to right. restore calm order in Hong Kong. Meredith, the, the path here from Tung Chi Wa to Donald Singh, who I knew quite well when I was in Hong Kong a lot years ago, to Mr. Luang, to Carrie Lam, who would replace Carrie Lam? Would it be someone more stridently Beijing-oriented, or would it be someone like Donald Singh who had a great affinity for Western capitalism? So it, it, this is, this is a, a critical question, especially because Carrie Lam has no obvious political heir. Uh, she's just two years into her five-year term, and this is far too early uh, for yeah. uh, Beijing or anyone to, to really try to see who they're going to, to groom to, to take her, her place. If we see this kind of pressure, this kind of pushback from the Hong Kong people, I would expect that we're going to, to see a follow-on leader who is still going to be fairly closely aligned to Beijing, but someone who is more palatable to the, to the Hong Kong people, someone whom would be able to inspire more a modicum of trust, that they're going to take the Hong Kong people's views into serious consideration uh, in terms of policy or onward legislation. The people of Hong Kong are clearly very, very worried about the status quo and the status quo being unwound. I'm wondering, Meredith, whether the Chinese government right now see value in the status quo. See value in, in the, the status quo, you mean in terms of... In terms, uh, in terms of the, the two systems, one country within Hong Kong and the current yeah. setup, the current framework, the current government, the way things process in that place. So from, from Beijing's perspective, and again, this is, this is Xi Jinping's uh, China, uh, there is value in the one country, two systems from a commercial and investment standpoint. But as Beijing works to accelerate its own internal reforms to be more market-oriented while still having the Communist Party firmly in control, that line is likely to get blurred so long as the Hong Kong people allow it to get blurred. And that's why we're, we're seeing the surprise from Beijing uh, that, you know, since Xi Jinping has come to power, uh, this growing right. encroachment of Chinese, Chinese influence over Hong Kong's system. But what's critical here is if Hong Kong's legal autonomy begins to be chipped away, even if Beijing thinks that its, its commercial autonomy remains intact, it's the foreign business community and the concerns of the foreign business community which may prove Beijing wrong. Meredith, uh, one final question quickly here. Are we going to see hundreds of thousands slash millions of protesters into the G20 meeting? In, in Japan or, or no, no, in, in Hong China, Kong? No, no, in China, in Hong Kong. 
you know, that, that's a great question. My sense is that, that the protesters in Hong Kong are more so focused on Carrie Lam, uh, on their government, and on some critical dates coming up. Of course, July 1st is the anniversary of the city's handover from British to Chinese uh-huh. rule. That's a yeah. traditional yeah. protest date. Yeah. And July 11th, that's the end of the current legislative session. So they're more so going to be focused on that than they are on the, the geopolitical realities of the G20 mini- meeting. Okay. That said... Donald Trump is reportedly going to raise Hong Kong with Xi Jinping. And, of course, we have uh, U.S. Yeah. Vice President Mike Pence, who <clears throat> may also raise Hong Kong uh, in an upcoming yeah. China speech. Meredith, thank you so much. Meredith Sumter. Thanks, Meredith. popular with our guests with uh, just terrific perspective. Elisa Martinucci joining us now from Bloomberg Opinion. Elisa, always great to get you with us on this program. So finally, a little bit of urgency. How does it materialise in the coming month? Uh, well, you, you, those are your words. I'm not sure I see that much urgency, given that it's been <laughs> a couple of months since they abandoned merger talks. And I think actually that's part of what investors expected back then is when they walked away from these discussions with Commerce Bank, for the bank to present its own its vision of what it could do on its own. And and this has been lacking since we've had a you know drip feed of information okay. um, in the papers. But um, so far, no one's overly excited about what they're hearing. It would appear. Eliza, I remember my first meeting with you in Zurich when you completely owned the knowledge of Italian banking. Now you own the knowledge of all of EU banking. You write definitively for Bloomberg Opinion. What are they waiting for? Do they have like consultants or do they have regulators saying go slow? I mean, what what is the value to Mr. Saving of waiting four weeks or eight weeks to affect a plan? Well, I think what you've had is, you know, a, a combination of factors. I mean, he was, um, you know, he was midway through his own um, strategic um, overhaul, pretty much when he was kind of forced into a room with Commerce Bank, uh, you know, to engage in these merger discussions, which he himself said it was it was too early to engage with anybody because um, they still have to do a lot of, you know, a, a lot of the oh, their own restructuring first. So that must have been a distraction. But you've also had, um, you know, according to you know, various press reports, you know, some. Um, Different messages from from the board, perhaps um, being somewhat resistant um, to scaling back in in the investment bank, particularly uh, coming from the chairman there, Paul Arkleiner, um, and that appears to have complicated um, and certainly taken up more time, perhaps than it should have. As you say, why is it taking so long? It, it's not entirely clear. There was a belief in some parts that finally maybe we'd get a rate hike from the ECB and it would bail out some of the business models at Deutsche Bank. Is that where some of this urgency comes from, Elisa? That this current environment is going to remain with us for a long, long time, and they need to adjust to it. Absolutely. But I think that has been clear, um, you know, for quite for some time. And now, of course, you get into the point where um, conditions are deteriorating potentially quite rapidly. You've had a warning um, last week that Germany might be on on the brink of a recession. So the more they wait, the longer and the more difficult it's going to be uh, and the more drastic the measures will have to be. So, yeah, time is really not on, you know, not, not their friend right now. Lisa Martinuzzi, great to get you with us on the program from Bloomberg Opinion on Deutsche Bank. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.